matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. And I'm Matt, and I'm working with Spin's 2015 list of the best 300 albums from 1985 to 2015, starting at number one and moving down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it. Sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it, but this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. I will provide two new movies and explain what makes them worthy substitutions, and then Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movies list. Then we trade places. Uh, Matt will have two new movies to talk through, and then I'll make my choice for the subtitles albums list. Sometimes... He'll have seen the movies, sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, uh, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles, and at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we have finished these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on, but before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's titles to be replaced are Toy Story and Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers. Matt, I'm excited. I am too. The combination, <clears throat> I don't know, it's just sheerly the most interesting and amusing, I think, out of anything that could have happened on these. Interestingly, I think these are two of the titles which, I don't know, out of out of any of the combinations we have, these, these are definitely up there for like, how well do I know both of them, uh, which is kind of an interesting twist, I'll say. And again, it's really it's really too bad that it's happening this soon. Yeah, we're peaking early, as you have been saying, I think, in several of these already. Uh, yeah, I didn't think about it that way, but I, I know both of these very well as well, though, honestly, I probably know the movie better. Um, which is going to be interesting, because I, I know that's not going to be the case for most of these. Um, and that's largely a product of, you know, when does a white kid actually realize that Wu-Tang Clan exists? But we'll talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> or just when do two people born in the early 90s discover Toy Story? You know, like, I think Toy Story just kind of had the drop on, I don't know, all music for me. I don't, I don't think that's an unusual case or anything. Yeah, I think Disney and Pixar were going to be in my mind way before most non-radio music, and certainly before a lot of gangster rap, but yeah, I'm excited. This is going to be a, a weird and interesting episode, I think, with a, a an incredible tonal shift in the middle. <laughs> well, usually I think we're, we're going to start these off talking about the whenever we have to talk about the movie, trying to sum it up a little bit and give something of a plot synopsis. But 
I don't know. Don't really think we need to do a lot of that for Toy Story, so I guess we'll just say in one sentence the concept of if your toys came to life after you stopped looking at them, uh, what would you do? What would they do? Um, and this movie is, is set to answer that question, which I think genuinely kind of haunts a lot of children's minds about uh, do my toys live on when I am not playing with them or doing something? And that's why the topic that I took from this is playtime. So Toy Story is a movie that's all about playtime. The two potential subtitles for today are also all about this idea of playtime and how that comes about and why that matters more than just goofing off. Um, so for this movie, playtime is a big element in it because it's the way that Woody knows he's alive. Um, this movie starts us off with this scene of essentially a kid playing with his toys. And it's, it's almost, in, you know, in retrospect, when you think about how much acclaim this movie has had and how many sequels have followed it and how many sequels will continue to follow it because the world is unjust, um, you, you look at it and you think that the beginning of this is a little slow. It's a kid literally playing with his toys. It is a, it is a scene it, which sounds like a child playing with his toys. It's got a dog who creates force fields and he, the dinosaur who eats force field dogs. Nom, 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 nom. Um, it, it has the imagination of if you don't have a bad cowboy, you have to replace him with a bad Mr. Potato Head. Um, there's, there's something very endearing about that scene and it definitely gives you a sense of what it is that Woody likes. Um, he likes being at the center of attention. He enjoys the way that he, uh, you know, gets to be the hero and gets the girl. I mean, he is basically Gary Cooper, uh, for the, I have no idea which birthday this is. Did they ever say which birthday he's having? I... I'm not sure. They must have somewhere, because I feel like by the time Toy Story 3 dropped, we all realized that Andy was basically a year younger than you and I. Maybe that's or, it. Well, that was just because he was going to college, never mind. I'm not sure if they do ever say the the age. I think we just retro-engineered what he would have been. <laughs> yes, because it, I mean, it was about the same time, so I think that hit hard for a lot of us. Um the conflict of this movie, of course, is that Woody does not get to be Gary Cooper forever because, I don't know, this is a stupid metaphor, but there's going to be uh, an Ed Harris playing John Glenn who shows up. The, the space invaders eventually come around, and that person is Buzz Lightyear, who is this astronaut action figure toy who can karate chop and has a, a laser light that blinks. Um, this is the, the movie that taught a lot of us what laser envy was. That's very true. Um, but hear me out here. What if Ed Harris was Buzz Lightyear? Like in a personal way? or I, I meant in a voice acting way, but I guess also in a personal way. It means there'd be fewer snitches in the voice cast of Toy Story. That's true. Um, yeah. yeah. Is, is the greatest lasting legacy the, the teaching of laser envy? It may be. Either that or the that wonderful little moment where the where Mr. Potato Head goes up to Ham and he's got his face all mixed up 
And he, he goes up to him and says, look, I'm Picasso. And Ham says, I don't get it. And we learned that uncultured swine was a thing. And it's two outstanding jokes right in the beginning. Um, I think, I mean, they're not exactly sleepers, but Potato Head and Ham are, I don't they do so much work in the whole series. And like, they just get these wonderful moments. And I recognize that Woody and Buzz are like classic animated creations but i don't know just the larger cast in all of these and especially in this first one it's just so tight and so good and they all get these wonderful little moments can can i also go on a slight tangent this is this is mostly peak but you know we're not quite 10 minutes in and i feel like there's still room for peak (laughs) Uh, go for it my my thought about this it's it's the mid 90s when they release this, we're still a long way off from the stuff that uh, people uh, start watching while we're in college. So, like, little kids who started watching Disney movies while we were 18 and 19 are thinking about Frozen and Moana and what else. Um, and those movies are overwhelmed with these little, like, jokes for adults. You know what I mean? Like those little things. It's like, and here's a joke for the big people. And, and it's, it's always deeply cringy. But what I really love about Toy Story is that the movie is made for adults in the sense that it's about being replaced by your child. And of course, that is the great anxiety of many parents is that one day they will wake up and their child will have found something to replace them. And often they're not, I mean, we just said we didn't know Andy's age, but like, it usually happens around Andy's age, where they where they find something else that's not as, or rather, their parents are not as cool as, and it only gets worse from there. Um, I mean, the entire series is about this anxiety of being replaced or gotten rid of, and of course, that's like a, a very normal parental fear. And of course, they get to go see the movie about it. So, like, I don't know. It's like if you uh, <laughs> if you if you went to see Company or something as a single person in their 30s who wasn't sure when they were going to get married, and you went with someone who was married for the past 10 years and very happy about it. Like, it's it just two totally different perspectives based on who's seeing it. And that's one of the things that appeals to me about this movie and, and makes it great. And I'm going to chew out AFI later for their placement of this, but that, can, that actually can't wait. Uh, many reasons to chew out both of these lists at various points. I think... Right, this isn't a novel take, but I think the best Pixar movies are really what they do best is they're able to create this existential moment in the adults in the theater or in the room or wherever they're watching, and like that's primarily what they're for. And they entertain kids besides, but it's not the here's a kids movie and I'm gonna keep the parents vaguely interested every twenty minutes or something. But really these are ruminations on things that not that kids can't comprehend, but that just are, are more pointed at adults. Right, if, if when we were young watching this movie, like most most kids, if not all, they take their toys, they try to make them living, they paint scenes with them, like they imagine them as real and as a community, and right, like they anthropomorphize them. They, they are people, and that's that's good. That's a good thing, and that's fun. And you can go a long way with that as a movie, but 
right? If you're five or six or seven, you're not really thinking about, well, what about mortality or legacy or, you know, what, what happens if I am a parent and when the kid no longer needs me or overtakes me or something like that, um, right? Those are all philosophical considerations that young kids aren't going to get, but they're still very much entertained. But the movie is pointed at the former, um, I thought where you were going to go and what I, I would say too is I like Toy Story for not right sort of the adult joke moments are kind of obvious in retrospect but it, I don't feel like it puts on giant signals when they're about to come and it doesn't really play down to the audience where it's like look I'm Picasso not everyone's going to get what that means anyway whether they're an adult or a child but it doesn't really pander to well let me explain what Picasso is or like let me show you Guernica in the background now so you understand oh okay that guy a lot of us are like the hockey puck in that moment <laughs> just that's a good point just sort of looking at it and going like I mean, for me, that's that's part of what's really glorious about that movie is this relatively sophisticated joke about cubism followed by, <laughs> what are you looking at, you hockey puck, and then the hockey puck. It's not. It doesn't even have an expression. It doesn't have a face. But, like, its expression is so clear. It's, it's, really, it's really a magical thing. Um, so the conflict, of course, is that Buzz replaces Woody. Um, and it turns out that... The system of government in Toy Story is sort of interesting in that the the toy who is the unquestioned favorite toy also appears to be the leader, um, and that that just kind of happens without a referendum or anything. Like, it just, very organically, everyone in the, in the room just sort of gravitates towards Buzz. Um, and there's something very interesting about this situation i think because for toys things should be very simple you're either getting played with or you're not um but in this particular little community the idea of who gets played with and who doesn't get sort of trickles down um so who directs it who's at the center of it um and who gets cast aside at the end of it so it's this very serious thing um because as the movie sort of make clear as things go on, like the point of being a toy is to have a kid playing with the toy. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then the toy is relegated to a shelf or to the yard sale or, or to the garbage compactor from hell or whatever it is in, in future movies. Um, but in this case, it's, it's really just a question of like, Woody just goes from being like the favorite toy to the second favorite toy. And yet that completely shifts the way that he lives um, in that strange things montage, which is so good. Um, we see over and over again that even the toys who had looked up to Woody or really gotten along with him well, all of a sudden are looking to buzz for fulfillment. Um, so Woody couldn't be bothered to like teach Rex how to roar better and just sort of made fun of him for being unable to scare him. But Buzz like takes a second to actually like, teach him how his diaphragm works or something. I'm not getting into the science of it, but, like, that's what he does. And there's a big four that, like, blows, blows Potato's head's hat off and everything. Um, or or he goes up to to Slinky and, and, like, gives Slinky a little chin scratch, and it's very endearing until Woody pushes Slinky's butt off the bed. Um, like, there are these very these very interesting little moments where you just see that 
Buzz has taken over the room. The decorations are Buzz. The sheets are Buzz. Um, I'm thinking about that immortal line. Bed sheets? Who invited that kid? <laughs> Which is one of, another one of those just like delicious little one-liners that they've got in there. Um, but the bed sheets turn into a thing. It's like Woody like looks down at it one day, and there they are. He's standing on Buzz's face instead of on the little cowboy motif. Um, I mean, in short, essentially, this is a movie where for, I'd say like the first half of it or so, before this turns into a survival tale uh, in which two toys try not to get blown up, um, it's, it's very much a question about how does playtime change the way that I live? And how is it representative of the kind of, of person I am and how do I see myself and how will others see me? And all of that is, is very much being laid in, I, I think, very intelligently um, into that first half. So for me, this is, this is like the greatest animated movie ever made in this country. Um, as you can tell from the fact that this is our second episode and we're doing Toy Story, AFI had it 99th. Which, on one hand, I think that's nuts. I think that's just a, a crazy kind of ranking. And I can hear myself in the background saying, there are so many movies, you know, just being on the list is very cool. But at the same time, this is, I'm pretty sure, one of two animated movies they've got on here total. So, like, they know this is a historically great animated picture. And yet they still only just find room for it. Um, and granted, it's one of the newer movies on the AFI list uh, with that 95 date. But it's it's still pretty wild to me that, that this is so low. I mean, I think there's a couple things converging here. The <clears throat> One, the... How do I want to put this? Kind of the hesitancy, or the hesitance, rather, that AFI has towards recency um they're a little scared of anything that's too recent that's absolutely a thread they have yeah i, th I think that combined with also a more general hesitance towards animated films certainly not every publication or every list but a lot of them animated films don't have a ton of representation and when they do it's kind of the same stable of of titles and I mean, that's understandable, the ones they draw from, whether that's Toy Story, whether that's WALL-E, <clears throat> um, you know, Snow White if they're going for technical things, or, you know, Beauty and the Beast or, or Lion King if those show up. Um, you know, if they're going non-American and pull in Miyazaki. Um, right, it's understandable why those are there, but I think in general there's a kind of a lack of... I don't know if it's consideration, but I'm going to say consideration for animated films. And it, it hurts me a little bit. Um, I mean, part of that is just because I grew up with this stuff. Um, you know, you and I grew up at like peak Pixar. So we kind of know what these things can do and they have a special place for us anyway. But like, these are just good movies flat out. And Toy Story should be higher than 99. Like, I understand being on the list itself is still like, oh, that's good. Like, there's a lot of movies, top 100, that's something. But Toy Story is better than 99th. Especially by the criteria they have for it, too. Because this is the, the first feature-length uh, CGI movie. Um, 
one where all the animation is is not in the the cell style, but in the sort of three D. Um, and and I mean, it still it still looks okay. Like I realized that you know it didn't it never looked bad, but like I don't know. We've spent a lot of time with the Incredibles, which we don't have to get into right here. But the Incredibles looks like Veggie Tales to me. But Toy Story, I really have never had that problem with, and maybe it's just because they spend so much time on on toys as opposed to just like real people. But it it really does look incredibly good. Even the VHS, I think, looked really good, and I'm sure they've updated it for DVD or Disney Plus or whatever. Um, I still have that VHS, and like, I, I watched this movie, and the graphics, and I mean this genuinely as praise. Now, what, 25 years later, <laughs> they don't stand out, and I think that's a good thing because the reason graphics would stand out from older movies would tend to be, oh, these look dated. But I watch Toy Story and like I don't think about that, which I think speaks to how smooth and how crisp they are. And that right, all these years later, that movie still looks good. And Pixar has stuff after it that does not look as good and can still be good movies. But just graphically, cinematically, like it's such an easy movie to watch. You know what's really interesting about that um, is that you think about some some movies from from a similar era, basically. Like, I don't know. I keep thinking about Twister. Twister <laughs> looks hilarious. Like, Twister is just a goofy-looking movie. And it was state-of-the-art, and, and I mean, I'm sure in, in 97 or 98 or whatever, it, it or 96 or whatever mid-90s year it was, um, I'm sure it looked really remarkable, but you watch that movie now and you're just like, Ooh, <laughs> like this one, it's not, it's not holding up, um, because the CGI is just not as good. And for whatever reason, Toy Story, I think really does, does have this outstanding look to it. Um, where it's dated in the sense that some things are just going to look older, but it doesn't look bad, even though it, it has that age. Um, I, I had to satisfy my curiosity about something. So, you know, about like the AFI 10 top 10 thing they did. Yeah. All right. So, you know, I'm going to say this for the listener who may not, but the year after, uh, they did the updated AFI list, they did 10 lists of 10 in different genres and ranked those. And animation was one of the genres, which I don't know, maybe I'm being a pedant, but like, that's not a genre. That's a medium. Whatever. Um, Toy Story was sixth on that list. Like, isn't that funny? Like, it made the the 2007 list, but among the animated films, it was sixth? So, wait a minute. I know those lists exist, but I don't actually know what comprises them. What do they have ahead of Toy Story? They've got Snow White there at number one. And Snow White has been, like, the one they've had on all the lists. Say what you will. It's a groundbreaking movie. Do whatever. Uh, yeah. Pinocchio is two, Bambi is three, Lion King is four, and Fantasia is five. So speaking of a hesitance to deal with anything recent besides well, Lion King, which is the well, least, here's, here's the like, second, the most safe choice they could make. The second half of it is Toy Story, Beauty and the Beast, Shrek, Cinderella, Finding Nemo. So like the top half is just here are the first. What it's it's 
four of the first five Disney movies and Lion King, and the rest of it is like really an exercise in recency bias. Um, it's it's a very interesting list, and it's I don't even know how, how they got there. I'm just gonna say, Toy Story is definitely the best of those ten. And Shrek is number two, and then I'm going to move away from the mic and let you yell. <laughs> You're lucky we're not on Twitter. Um, so that's, I mean, this is this is just a, a historically great movie. Um, it's a historically important movie. It's one that does a lot of things well. And I don't know. I, I think there's a very good case to be made that we will not see a better animated movie in this country. I Maybe we've peaked. That might just be it. Um, and if it, if that was it, it would not be a bad thing. Like, it would be kind of depressing. Um, but I, I really do think this might be as good as it gets for an animated movie. Just absolutely everything goes right. And that's, that's such a hard thing to do, especially with a thing which was so new. Um, and now, of course, animation is, is incredibly expensive, and it's so time-consuming, and it's always been like that, and it will always be like that, but... I don't know. Nothing Nothing quite measures up. I think right, it's depressing to think about, well, can we never do anything like that again? But it's not depressing to think, well, if Toy Story is the best one we ever do, that's a high mark. Like, right, that, that, it's, it seems worthy to me of that mantle if it does keep that for however much longer the Earth exists. And by that, I mean however much longer humans exist, because the Earth will outpace us. But anyway, back down from my stump. Good for the Earth. Again, that's not like a criticism of movies writ large, because you're talking to a guy who thinks the greatest movie ever made was from 1955. So, like, it's not that I think movies have all been terrible for the past 50 years or whatever. It just... that's, That's just the way I think about it. So, the, um... The two movies that I thought about as far as sharing this theme of playtime um, are both about kids, kind of. Um, in one, one of them is Little Women. That's the 2019 version, the Greta Ger- Gerwig one that came out around Christmas last year, um, and which I will go ahead and say was quite my favorite movie of last year. Out of all the ones I saw, that is the one I, I like the most. Um, and then the other one is the 1986 movie Stand By Me, which is part of that magical 1980s Rob Reiner run. run? Rob Reiner run. <laughs> I wish I'd thought about that before I said it. But like, I mean, from people say it all the time, but from 84 to 89, the guy directed This is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, uh, The Princess Bride, and When Harry Met Sally. I mean... It, it is it is hard to top that. I'm on, like, a, another movie or two, but, like, those are the, the big four. Um, so, Little Women, we'll start with that one. Another movie I'm not sure I necessarily have to get all the way into the plot for. Um, but this movie is, is so interesting because it doesn't tell its story in a linear way. And for some reason, people were mad about it. I was so confused by the reaction. I'm like, I'm sorry, like, is editing too hard? Whatever. I don't have to do this right now. Little Women is a, is a movie in which um, 
this idea of who gets to be in charge of playtime is really essential. Um, the the main character in this is Joe March, played by Saoirse Ronan, and she is sort of the archetypal brilliant young person who is just consumed in her writing and is this tremendously creative and an engaged storyteller. And I think the thing that stands out to me most about her work in this movie is not necessarily a question of like, is she good or not? Because I'm not sure that's necessarily important. Uh, but the fact that she loves it so much and does it all the time. And she's interesting as a character who is a creative uh, individual because she is constantly in the act of doing it. And she feels so much in the act of doing it. And she's not just pretending to be a writer or saying, like, oh, I dabble. Like, this is someone for whom this expression of creativity is right on the line between play and work. So she can have these moments where she's, like, writing a play and her sisters have to put it on with her. And that's, like, fun. But at the same time, it's definitely very serious for her. And like Woody, if she's not at the center of it, she doesn't really know who she is. Like she derives so much of her identity from being the creative artsy type who, who gets to run whatever amateur theatricals or her novel or whatever. Um, she, she gets so much of her own value from that, that when she's not that person... Uh, when she's challenged, or when she's forced to grow up, um, she has a hard time dealing with that. So this is, the reason this movie, I, I, I find it so brilliant, is because it has completely changed the dynamic between sisters. So I think many an oldest child or older sibling has related to Joe March, and by related to Joe March, I mean hated Amy. Uh, in this movie played by Florence Pugh. Um, and in so many other adaptations of this, from the musical to the 94 Armstrong adaptation, which I do, I like that movie a whole lot. Like, I really did not expect to have another Little Women in my lifetime I enjoyed so much. Um, but in that movie, Amy is a pill, is just a, a little twerp. Um, and it's interesting to me that that story is mine for that conflict so frequently because sibling rivalries, despite what people tell you are like kind of a made up thing. And they're not just like, Oh, they live together. They're going to fight. It's really a question of how is one sibling making themselves superior or how is one sibling feeling inferior? And it's not a question of just like, Oh, this will happen. Like, no, it's, it's, it's something that happens because it's not interdicted. So in this movie, it's not treated like, oh, this was inevitable, and Amy is a little agent of chaos, and she should burn with the novel she torched. Um, but it's a question of Amy's deep feeling of inferiority, because Joe has run playtime for so long, and she has had so little of it. Um, there's this wonderful scene... Uh, later in the movie where Amy is painting and she's gone to Europe and she's become, we see the painting and it's a, it's a clever move to have the painting in there because it's very beautifully done. And she just looks at it and she's like, I'm never going to be a great painter. And if I, if I can't be great, I'll be nothing. Um, and she has this, this incredible 
streak of like, I'm not going to pretend to be some brilliant artist when I'm just a, a very good painter who will never be great. But she feels that, that pressure to be great at, at her art because she has seen throughout her entire childhood that greatness in art is what makes people like you. Um, and that's, that's what has led people to Joe and sort of made Amy a little bit more of an outcast. Not that she is, you know, unloved or anything, but she's very much a second choice. Uh, Joe gets the plaudits at home. Joe does the, the brave thing and cuts off all her hair. And all Amy can say is, oh, Joe, you're one beauty. Like, she doesn't do anything so good herself. Um, it never occurs to her. And, of course, there are the other March sisters have their own playtime. Um, they, I think Beth in this movie played by Eliza Scanlon gets this really, really affecting sequence. Um, Chris Cooper is playing Lori's uh, uncle, um, and he has the piano in the house, and his daughter used to play, and Beth comes in and starts playing, and he, like, comes downstairs, and he doesn't want to, like, freak her out by looking at her, but he just wants to be, like, part of it, and he has this, like, deep feeling because of his memory of it. And we see that, again, this sort of playtime is very serious. Um, this is what Beth does to chill out and relax and enjoy herself. And it, it has this profound effect in the other room on a different character. And I, I find that one to be a very, a very powerful little microcosm of why this matters so much to people. I was just going to say, <clears throat> shout out to Mr. Lawrence, who really just wants the kids to be happy and successful. And, like, it's that classic, like, he's very gruff exteriorly, but that, that warm heart inside. But, I don't know, I think this movie does really well by him. I think this movie is great in general, I agree. It was my favorite of last year as well. Um, the casting is wonderful. There's just so many lovely moments. And I think the editing and the nonlinear nature of it... it really what helps recast that Joe Amy tension and I think helps it become more nuanced and more profound even and, and really helps that shine as something important and productive and not just the nagging younger sister is going to be as you said a twerp and destroy things and like like we're all going to feel bad for Joe I really think the, the non-linear nature makes it so that Amy is also more sympathetic and easier to empathize with. And honestly, Amy was my favorite in the movie. Flor Florence Pugh absolutely destroys that role. It's, it's incredible to me. Just like, she was so funny and, and so poignant. And of course she has like the two little voices. Like she has the, I'm a sad child who has the, the, smallest best feet in the family and like whines at people in windows but she's also the one who looks directly at timothy chalamet who i like kind of hated before this and now i get it like <laughs> he is so charming anyway so like she has that moment of, like, that, that, that may be the movie's greatest legacy if it makes you come around on chalamet like i don't know i'm not i was not a big chalamet fan i i'm i don't understand the call me by your name fixation that the internet has but and i didn't enjoy ladybird as much as everyone else but like i watched this movie and i'm just like 
this is the most like charming little anime character I've ever seen in my life. He's just like the most adorable, funny thing. Anyway, but there's that moment where, where he basically uh, shadow proposes to Amy and in a voice that is absolutely 180 degrees different from I have the best feet in the family. She says, no, don't be cruel. And she's like, you know, I've loved you my whole life and I'm not going to be your consolation prize. But it, it goes back to that, uh, that idea of who's in charge based on, based on the, the play that everyone has. And for me, the movie's single best scene is the one where like, where Joe has to face up to the fact that she's the only one of her sisters who hasn't grown up, um, which is unfair to Beth because she's dead and can't grow up anymore. Um, but the other two sisters are married. Not that she knows that Amy is married at this point, um, but but the other two are are married. And she has that moment where she's sort of too old to be a kid anymore. And she's had her novel ripped up by Professor European. And she's she's sort of mourning the fact that she's going to be alone at this point because she has held on to the thing that made her priceless for too long. Like she, she didn't ever adapt to change uh, the way that her sisters adapted and changed because they were not in that light. To me, it just, it's, it's just such a, a wonderful, a wonderful scene. It's a very emotional scene and it, it gets at that idea of I am valuable because I am creative and I and I do f interesting things, and if I'm not that person anymore, then do I still have any value? Do I want to settle for being someone's wife in postbellum America? Like that's not much of a consolation prize, but it sure beats being that lonely. Right. Um... Professor European, or Friedrich, as... <laughs> as some of us like to call him. <laughs> <laughs> as may be his name, who knows. Um, I don't know, I think the ending... It really drags out that, like, come on, just get together already moment, but I think in an actually kind of fun way, but... I don't know, right, she is kind of settling into marriage, in a way, or into relationship anyway, but he is the one who cares about her work. Um, not that no one else does, but right. He cares about it enough to give it that critical lens. And that's sort of that growing up moment where it's earlier in the movie. That's a point of just hot tension and she storms out and right. They aren't ready for that yet, but like he actually wants to nurture that and help that grow. So yeah, it's, I don't know, it's an interesting moment where it is, well, is this what I have to do to actually grow up? But, right, he he does want to nurture those skills in some way, or at least help her realize those even more. Um, He's the first one who's really very serious about it. Like, everyone yeah. else is like, we go along and do this because there are four of us, and we're in Massachusetts, and there are no other children, apparently. But, like, he's the first <laughs> one who... Who seems genuinely very serious, like, oh, if you're if you're a writer who's going to be published, then maybe you should do X, Y, whatever. Um, yes, yes, it it's still it's still such an interesting conclusion, and I I like that the movie kind of it doesn't I don't think it like 
expects us to doubt that they get married. Um, but it, it, it gives us a little bit of doubt. It gives us a little bit of a way to look at it and say, is this just something that's been written in um, into the story about herself? Which I think is interesting, if if not necessarily like a, a groundbreaking change. Yeah, I think that's interesting, and it also leaves that uh, sort of that individual or that radical individuality left for Joe, um, right? Where we could think, well, maybe it doesn't end like that, and maybe it is a a novel fabrication, or maybe it is. Right. Ultimately, that wasn't right for her. That's like she can still grow up, but that's not how she can do it. I want to say one of my favorite things about this movie is just Laura Dern and <laughs> the master of the cameo here, Bob Odenkirk, just holding down the fort, literally and <laughs> metaphorically. <laughs> They're very good. Chris Cooper is so good. Um, the person who surprised me most in this movie, um, and I am. I'm just going to come out and say this because I think we're we're lobbying our unpopular takes today. Um, but I am so over Meryl Streep. And this is one of the few movies since Devil Wears Prada where I've just been like, yes, let Meryl Streep cook. And not with a funny accent. She can do more than a funny accent. And she's been passing off a funny accent as acting for too long. And this movie, there's no funny accent. There's just this sort of good curmudgeonly part. I'm like, yes, that's what I'm looking for. Just let her be this old dowager and emphasis on the dower part of that. And like, it's just, it's fun when she shows up. And it's, I don't know, it's important too, because she is, like, what she's saying isn't wrong. The, like, that's because I'm rich no one wants to so accept great. it, but like, she's not wrong. <laughs> no, she's not. And I mean, it, it definitely gets into Amy, who makes decisions on, on a similar basis. Anything else about Little Women that, that you think I've missed or to bring up here about this, this playtime concept? No, I think tying this to play is really interesting, and I think it's a good way to talk about it. I don't think you missed anything either. I would just echo that this is a really good adaptation and I love the changes it makes and how it just recasts the narrative uh, formally. And I really don't understand what the hullabaloo was about why it's broken up. I think it makes it more interesting uh, and I think it allows it to do more things and really just enhance the pathos of it all, but not in a cheap way. Uh, I think it makes it more impactful. Like even Beth's death, which Spoilers, but the novel is ancient. But but it was it was a plot point on Friends. Like that's the thing about the editing I don't get is like this this book. There is a Friends episode about it, and I've never watched Friends, and I know that. Like we're not spoiling this for anybody. I certainly hope not. Anyway, but even her death, like the way it breaks up the scenes of her actually dying, and those little moments that she has with each sister, and then each one of them caring for her in some way, and right, her death always hurts. But even, like, I remember watching this in the theater and just going, "Man, I knew this was happening. Like, I actively knew this was happening the whole time, and it's still hitting me." So I think just the way this movie is constructed and. Very big shout out to all the the cast as well. It just it really hits in a different and stronger way, I think. 
Yeah, I almost I almost feel bad about gushing about it so much. Um, on one <laughs> hand, I have such a hard time talking about things that I like this much, and so I'm glad that I've been able to express what it is that I find so interesting. And on the other hand, I feel like this does not bode well for my second movie, <laughs> um, which is which is really a wonderful movie in its own right, and has been which another. I will say another very very interesting adaptation um, for me. This is this is probably the second best Kane adaptation. Um, ah. I mean, The Shining, on its own terms, is barely an adaptation. It's almost like somebody just took the character names, The Shining, and the Overlook Hotel, and just did something else. Um, but Stand by Me is such a such a wonderful Stephen King adaptation. Uh, in large part because it gets right so many of the things that make his stories interesting. Uh, he's always had a gift for that very casual interplay between characters. Um, I used to think his dialogue was better than I do now. I think it's it's occasionally a little stilted, but then again, the preteens in this movie are people who would sound stilted. Like that's just sort of the way that these these uh, pre middle school boys are going to talk. Um, so for those of us who have not seen seen Stand by Me, though again that seems like a vanishingly small number, uh, this is a story about four guys in their last week or so of summer before they're all supposed to go to middle school. Uh, the four of them hear about this kid who who is missing, presumed dead at this point, and they decide that they, having received some information they aren't supposed to have, uh, based on some accidental spying, uh, they, they decide that they're going to go collect this kid's body and turn it into essentially a little media circus for them. Um, and this sounds very callous, except for the fact that all four of these boys are definitely needing someone to pay attention f to them for having done something good. Um, so the leader of this group is Chris, and Chris in this incredible performance by River Phoenix. Like, genuine, like, kid performances are so hit and miss, and all of the kid performances in this movie are so good, but River Phoenix is, like, showing you what he's got in future movies in this. Like, you can draw a line from this to my own private Idaho, for example, and he comes from this terrible family with a drunk dad, and everyone expects him to be bad. Um, the main character is Gordy, being played by young Will Wheaton, uh, before he boarded the Starship Enterprise. Um, <laughs> Gordy is... Same universe, oddly enough. <laughs> Shut up, Wesley. Like, who knew that that was going to become a meme? I don't... It's, it's, it's incredible. Anyway, so that he... He just lost his older brother, played by John Cusack, who I don't think was a big name yet. I think all this stuff, this is what, 80? This is 86. 86, yeah, the short story is 82 or something. I think Cusack, the big stuff is after this. He had been, he'd been in Better Off Dead already, but like... The stuff, say anything is eighty nine. Yeah, so he's not he's not been in say anything just yet. Uh, he hasn't been in the Grifters yet. Like we're we're still a little ways away from John Cusack, like teen idol. Um, but he he had been in Better Off Dead, and he has he's got to have three minutes 
possibly, possibly three minutes, maybe more like two of screen time. But it's obvious what a that he was the only person in in the family who cared about Gordy at all, um, and now he is tragically dead in a in an accident at a military base. Um, and then the other two guys who are less important are Teddy and Vern, and Teddy's dad is suffering from profound PTSD and physically abuses him, and Vern is fat. <laughs> which, which I guess is, is the I just thing. This, like, right, these are preteen boys, and you get stuff like Lardass and the Barfo-Rama, and, like, it definitely hits that humor that we all had at 12. Okay, so this is actually, the Lardass sequence is actually is actually the thing that stands out to me as the playtime bit in this in this movie because Perfect. just here's the thing that people don't usually say but just as Joe March uses her writing as a sense of like this is who I am and this is where my value is Gordy's writing is the center of where his value is and that is never clearer in this movie than the lardass sequence which first of all Lardass is a tremendous piece of prosody. It it just sounds terrific. Um, Davy Hogan, that's nobody. Lardass, that's somebody. Um, and in in the Lardass story, there's essentially the the other guys are, you know, they know that that he's good at this. He, they know that he's a, a storyteller, and they ask him for a story, preferably not a horror story, because there's. <laughs> They're freaked out enough as it is, but he decides to tell them this this funny, strange, malevolent revenge story about a fat kid who is tired of getting bullied by everybody else and who takes revenge by making an entire tent of people throw up at a pie-eating contest. And it's this... Like, the scene is... When I was when I was little, I thought the scene was very gross. And growing up, like watching it again now, I'm like, they just got a bunch of like blueberries out of a can and just like sprayed it at people. And it, it's it's not supposed to look like vomit or anything. It's 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 definitely meant to be this very silly SNL style like fake thing. Um, but you you get a sense of Gordy as this this sweet, funny, valuable person because he does have the ability to enrapture people with the, with the stories he tells. Um, and of course, so much of the rest of this movie is sort of set up as a lark. Um, it actually takes the, the kids a, a, a little while to figure out maybe this trip to see a dead child shouldn't be a party. Um, but even so, they still have their moments of like, riffing off of one another and insulting each other's mothers and doing all of the things that you would expect a bunch of, of preteen guys to do. But what makes this movie very interesting to me is how the, how the tools of like that silliness and that play are also the same tools that are going to lead them into adulthood. Um, and, and for me, the number one example is the comb, which, which is, at first, it's this tremendous little sight gag that that Jerry O'Connell has in which he's like, I brought a comb! And everyone's like, for what? <laughs> he's like, well, the TV's, 
TV is going to want to see us and, and we're going to like, you know, want to look good. And, and I think it's Teddy who's like, you don't even have any hair. Like, what are you doing with this comb? And the comb eventually falls into a river from a railroad bridge because these boys decide to take a shortcut over a railroad bridge and don't realize there's a train coming. Um, and there's this very interesting transition from Vern losing the comb into the river to, oh my God, we have made a terrible decision and we need to like rectify it as quickly as possible. So there's, there's definitely a sense of like that playtime turning into let's be wiser in the future. Um, right in the beginning of the, the movie when they are going off um, to, to start their little journey, uh, Gordy and Chris meet and Chris can't wait to show Gordy the giant hand cannon he's packing. Um, and he gives it to, to Gordy and he's like, it's not loaded, is it? And Chris says no. And so Gordy shoots the thing and blows a hole in a trash can. Um, and it's a very funny moment. And it's not funny for Gordy, who's like, I was not trying to shoot a bullet here, buddy. Um, but for us, it's like this funny, kind of silly, very like relief laughter kind of moment. It's very much the kind of thing that that you would expect two boys with zero parental supervision would be involved in. Um, but it's also the same gun that later on is going to prove to be a kind of transition um, for, for Gordy, because he is the one who stops the, the bad, the bad hoodlum types play led by Kiefer Sutherland, who is, so interesting in this for one thing he looks exactly like his dad and for another thing it's a it's a weird performance you can tell it came from canada it's, it's like it's not polite precisely but it's like this very hissy kind of sibilant performance it's very interesting he's like threatening but not like scary like this is not the full stephen king psychopath did you know Kiefer Sutherland has five middle names? I didn't know that. I knew that all of Donald Sutherland's kids were named after di directors he worked with. So Kiefer William Frederick Dempsey George Rufus Sutherland. <laughs> that can't be real. I, I'm looking this up on the spot because I hadn't thought about Kiefer Sutherland in years. But <laughs> That's fascinating. Any, no, I'm, I'm just going to let that linger. That's, that's very, very <laughs> Sorry, interesting Sorry, people. There's your tidbit for the day. <laughs> that's your trivia for the day. It's like the song from Cinderella where, like, they're naming all the, the king and queen and the prince's, like, formal titles. It's very strange. Um, but anyway, he, he gives us a performance, and he is intent on taking the body and becoming the hero himself. And Gordy ends the situation, which looks like it's going to end with Chris getting sliced up. Um, and it, 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 he diffuses the situation by threatening to shoot Ace, the Kiefer Sutherland character. Um, it's even a very good line in there. Not the one about sucking my fat one, but the one about <laughs> Ace saying, you're not going to shoot us. And Gordy says, not them, Ace, just you. And you're just like, it's a little metal for this kid. I like it. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
And there are two moments in the last five minutes or so of this movie, well, let's say three, um, that really stand out to me. The first one is they come back to town at dawn-ish. It's not really dawn. But they come back to town and they've decided to, to leave a tip with the cops that they know where the body is. They're not going to take any credit. But they come back and they're like, the town is smaller. To them, they've grown up. They've had this moment of like playing through things. And, and now that they have done, um, now that they've gotten to a more adult place, the town doesn't seem so big anymore. It doesn't seem like the whole world. Two, there is a very neat little writery thing that happens where we find out that Chris was stabbed to death trying to make peace. And of course, we can only read that as um, he dodged a stabbing when he was 12 or whatever, and now he's now he's actually like getting the final payment. And the thing that gets me the most out of all of it is the very end where we find out that Gordy has grown up to be Richard Dreyfus, but with weird hair. And he, Richard Dreyfus has has a son, and it turns out that he's supposed to like take his son and his friend to the pool or something. It's not that important. But as the credits start playing and as, as the song, the Benny King song starts playing. We see him outside with his kid, like just sort of like the the two boys are like smacking each other with the towel and like then Richard Dreyfus joins in and there's this very interesting thought at like really literally in the credits, like directed by Rob Reiner is happening over it. Um, this idea that playtime isn't over just because you've grown up or learned something like there's still this moment of, of sort of joy and and pleasure and happiness and silliness Right, right there. Even though he is now a much older person who can only remember what it was like to be a kid and to have friends um, who were so near and important to him, and I find that very poignant, but also very optimistic in a way that I think suits the movie on the whole. Like this is a movie which I think a lot of us remember for the uh, "if I could only eat one food for the rest of my life, it would be cherry flavored Pez" bit, or the discussion of "is Goofy a dog." but Pluto's a dog, so what's Goofy? Like, that's like, that's big, and the lard-ass scene is big, and the train is big, and all of that. But, like, this is a movie which is also very sad in some places and, and very, very serious about what these kids are living through. Um, so that's sort of balanced, I think, in the end, even though there's this incredibly sad reaction to finding out that Chris was murdered, there is still also this sense that um, that the the sort of joy that he had as a young person he can still pass on or recreate with his own son. And I, I, I find that very endearing. There's also that moment at the end where I've never had any friends later on, like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone. And... I'm just reading that again right now. Like I was kind of <clears throat> vaguely searching around the movie as you were talking to refresh myself, and I'm just hitting the now. It's like, well, Jesus, does anyone? Like, <laughs> like that's a that's a really good point. Like you have to think about it, and you're like, it really is different around that age than like than it is at any other age. Like not necessarily like your best friends are the most important people, but like there's a there's a unique quality 
to the friends you have at that age, even if you're not going to keep them forever. Right. I forget who it is, and I'm sorry I can't cite this properly, but there's some stand-up who has a bit where it's... I mean, it's basically about how just making friends is so much easier when you're that age because you see so like now it's like you have to ask 20, 30 questions and figure out like, are they right for me? Um, like it's hard to make best friends, but when you're that age, it's like, oh, we both like cherry Pez. Cool. You're my friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> or we can discuss who would win in a fight, Mighty Mouse or Superman. Are you crazy? Superman's a real guy. <laughs> And that, oddly enough, is how Tim and I became friends. <laughs> <laughs> I was holding five elephants in one hand. <laughs> All right, so this is this has gone on longer than I expected, but there are a lot of movies here that I, I liked a whole lot, so we'll just call this like the grunge thing last week and, and forgive me, I guess. You have a sense of of which mo- which which title you'd like to sub for for our second replacement? I do, yeah. This one is hard because I like both. I like one more, but I do have a choice. Um, and I will say it is okay, but this will be like the grunge thing. The music one is going to be leaner this week. Um, I, I, I'm, I don't have as much to gush about as I did with grunge, but is there are there any final thoughts you have before I announce my sub-choice? Um... Not particularly. I guess I'll I'll try to I'll say like it's different from Toy Story to the two movies I have mentioned just because I feel like in Toy Story this idea of playtime is someone's whole life and we don't get to see how it will bend to that feeling of irrelevance or or aging or uh, mortality or whatever and I think that idea is much stronger in the two movies that are potential replacements for it which I don't know that that would change anyone's opinion about which one to sub, but I think it's an interesting, an interesting takeaway. I think so too, and I think it's interesting also that you pick two movies that have frame narrative. Um, this is true. And to that end, and I say that not as like that swayed my decision, but just to kind of connect it back to the theme of playtime. So, full disclosure, I like this version of Little Women more. Um, I, I enjoy that movie a whole lot, and I think it's right. If you if you just had me pick one of these straight, like I'd pick that. But for this theme, I'm going to pick Stand by Me, and that hurts a bit because I hate to see Little Women and, and Gerwig go. But I also think just thinking about playtime, especially that end where it's like the importance of passing on play to your children, where it takes kind of that anxiety of like what happens when the child is more than me or more important or doesn't need me anymore. And it's like, well, there's still that connection and like you still pass that on. And just some of the representations of playtime, particularly among uh, preteen boys, which, right, you know, we can talk about the representation issues and all of this, but like, I just think it kind of hits that in a way that really speaks to me anyway. And like, it speaks to the importance of play to making some sort of home life when home isn't that great. Yeah, I don't. I don't teach middle school on purpose. Um, but I'm looking. <laughs> I'm looking at these these guys who I guess would all be going into like seventh grade or whatever, and they are they are so true to what that sort of idea of playtime and friendship looks like at that age. And the only reason it's bearable is because they are made up 
living 3,000 miles from where I am and would be my dad's age, but like in real life. So like there's something that's very obnoxious about it, but there's something that's very true about it as well. Um, I think it's very interesting that we have picked three replacements so far, and I think we've picked the contrarian one three times. Isn't that funny? It's not funny. I knew exactly what would happen when, when we started talking about this. But. I mean, it's it that we're on brand, if nothing else. I, I don't know. I just... Right with this one, I think Stand By Me just works better for the idea of playtime. Or not even that it works better. Is it just... It, I don't know. It just feels more like that to me in some way. And that's sort of what broke that decision. But I mean, we spent a good bit of time on it. Little Women is a, is a great film and it's doing a whole bunch of good things. And it's, um, it's about more things too, I think. Yeah. It's about a lot more. And I think that, that kind of is affecting here too, where Little Women is doing a lot more, where Stand By Me seems more singularly about play in a way. Not that it's literally singularly about that, but it's kind of easier to see that thread through the whole thing. All right, so with our first pick of the day uh, for the theme of playtime, Toy Story has been subbed out between Little Women by Greta Gerwig and Stand By Me by Rob Reiner. Uh, Toy Story, the subtitle for it is Stand By Me. All right. I feel all right about that. It's, that's, it's an interesting topic. It is, I mean, two movies that I, I have very deep affection for. Either one replacing another movie I have very deep affection for. So this one is always going to be personal. Yeah, this was a good one. I like, all three of these movies are really fun and good and... Yeah, but this would this one was a fun talk and a fun topic. And speaking of playtime, speaking of fun, Tim the Wu Tang. What was your first? Tim is throwing up the W as all of you should be right now. What was your first exposure to the Wu Tang Clan? I'm interested. I can't wait to tell the story. Um, so, and it's it's not even a name dropping thing, but uh, it it kind of is. This is this is. A true thing. So in in ninth grade, I joined the academic challenge team. So I guess you can hiss and boo at my nerdiness uh, from a distance if you'd like. Um, but on the bus to competitions, we would listen to this occasionally. <laughs> like, <laughs> like this, uh, like some of the things that we would listen to on route, like this is, is where I found out about Wu-Tang. It's where I found out about Dizzy Rascal. It was... It was very interesting. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Please tell me that a bunch of Jersey Academic Challenge ninth graders were using, like, Bring the Ruckus as your pump-up song. Okay, for... but it, it wasn't just ninth graders. I was, like, one of the young people, and, like, it was, it was a 9 through 12 team. And okay. one of the 12th graders on the team is someone who currently works at Billboard, like, is currently a writer for Billboard magazine. Right. So it... It sort of tracks in an interesting way. The academic challenge team from Eastern High School has produced many writers and many, uh, many periodicals and websites of note. <laughs> so that's, that's where I first learned about them, which seems deeply bizarre. That's phenomenal. Um, 
Also, if we're going to shout out our high school stuff, I was an academic decathlon, so they can hiss at both of us, but mm. man, I missed that. It was fun. It was <laughs> um, a fun thing to do. Anywho, back to Wu-Tang, which is not academic decathlon, but which is hip-hop decathlon. There's a lot of them. Nearly a literal way. They're one short. Um, my first exposure to Wu-Tang, and I'm going to assume this is true for many a, a white person of our age, was the Chappelle Show skit uh, where they were doing the the racial draft and the very end of it, and like there are punchlines throughout this skit. It's phenomenal. But the big one is the Asian uh, delegate, uh, delegate chooses the entire Wu-Tang as their first-round choice. And it's just this phenomenally funny moment, and it speaks to an album, Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers, that is full of phenomenally funny moments. And Wright is playing on the sort of the Shaolin and the shadow boxing and the um, the whole East Asian aesthetic that RZA in particular is bringing to this whole album and to the Wu Tang group, and that's threaded throughout. You hear little skits at the beginning of a bunch of songs, or even in the middle of them, uh, and a lot of the the group names are referencing something in that vein, and it's this really. I don't, it feels like it shouldn't work, but like you listen to the album and it, then it just feels totally like, yes, of course this is this is what's here. This is what's happening. Um, it's so interesting to me just listening to it. You just listen to it straight through and I'm like, this is like a variety show. Like it's, it's, it's like the Muppets show if all the Muppets were incredibly gifted rappers, basically. Like that's, that's the vibe I get from it. They have skits, they have... Like you said, lots of jokes. It is highly referential. It just it, it is absolutely fascinating to listen to. It really is. I, I like the variety show uh, analogy. One because of the transition between you know skits to song. Uh, all the personalities on this. You have nine rappers, all of whom are are good at least. Some of who are profoundly good, and each of them has their own. I don't know, they're not care like they are characters in their own way, but they're not really playing. Like they're just also charismatic and they're all bringing something different. And the production on this is still astounding. And yeah. just to hear something go from right, like a, a Shaolin sample to some of uh, Riza's heaviest and just this is the beginning of street rap really in New York. And I'm not going to pretend I'm an authority on this subject at all or that I know all the ins and outs. You should go to other people for your, your more nuanced and, and better Wu-Tang opinions than I. But this is – so gangster rap is starting to rise in the, in, on the West Coast already. Um, you have pop, or, um, You have NWA and you have Dr. Dre uh, already ascendant. You have Snoop Dogg on the rise. Um, Tupac is not too far behind and we'll talk about him in a minute actually um, but the West Coast still has some other things happening but gangster rap is really taking off there led by Dr. Dre at this point in 1993 and Wu-Tang is really seen as this is the moment where New York moves into something different um, and certainly there are, there are murmurs of this before but this is where we get into this really dark 
and dingy and sort of grisly street hip hop. Um, and the Wu-Tang is bringing that to everyone's attention. But it's interlaced with these just sheerly funny and oftentimes um, just these, what's the word I want here, just these very interesting juxtapositions. Um, so it's kind of taking that, that the importance of humor to 80s New York hip hop and bringing that forward in a different way. Um, and also, also something very elegiac every now and then, which is not a word I usually apply to, to this kind of music, but there is something very sad about something like, can it be all so simple? Like that song, like the first time I heard it, I was just completely unprepared for it. Um, it, it was just so sad. I just thought it was like this incredibly like sad piece of music with, uh, like a really brilliantly done sample. Um, and it, I mean, the rest of it, as many like little jokes or screwing around as there seem to be, it still has that underpinning, I think, which, which gives the album, not that it wasn't very serious before in some ways, but like, there's, there's some like melodrama here too. Yeah. I think behind all of this is always, Wu-Tang is from Staten Island and a, in a poor part of Staten Island and, sort of that reality is always behind this. And we see this, right, in 94, Nas is going to release Illmatic, and that's another, oh, he's from Queensbridge, I want to say. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, please. But like we start getting these albums that are just moving even deeper and deeper into that, <clears throat> that harsh reality. Um, Mob Deep is going to release The Infamous in 1995, and that's another moment of this. Um, and Wu Tang, that's certainly all behind here. Um, and I don't, so 36 Chambers is held up as one kind of the beginning of that move in New York hip hop of like gangster rap comes to the East Coast. And RZA is, right, his producer bona fides are well documented and known. And. A lot of the the production here is sparse in terms of there's not always too much happening on any one song or or at any given moment, Um, but that makes it so much heavier. Like it's this addition by subtraction method where kind of those empty spaces in the production become just as important. And when you're letting just a couple samples really pull all this weight, it gets even heavier. Um, and I mentioned Mob Deep, like something like Shook One's Part Two. That's really going to come through, where that's working off three samples, and it's so much powerful for that, really. And that's consistent throughout Thirty Six Chambers. Um, <clears throat> so Riz's production value is, is really a star here, but we can't say it's the star. And our theme today is going to be rap collectives. And what sets Wu-Tang Clan apart from every other collective, I think, is that all of them are important, or at least most of them are important. Um, So we have RZA, who, of course, is the rapper-producer, and talk about his business credentials maybe a little bit, and how just kind of brilliantly he set up the collective. Uh, Then we have Jizza. Uh, we have Old Dirty Bastard, may he rest in peace, uh, Method Man, Raekwon, Ghostface Killer, Inspector Deck, You God, and Master Killer. And you'd be forgiven for not totally noticing when, say, You God or Master Killer show up, because I, I, I 
hazard a guess most people don't know what their voices sound like. I will include myself among them. I'm not, I'm not, it's taken me a while to understand like who's rapping when on a given track. And that's after studying the track lists and such. Um, of course, old dirty bastard sounds like no one else. Like no one else. He sounds like him. I think I said to Tim the other day, like there's sort of a proto Busta rhymes there. So like, if you want that sort of, if you imagine Busta's cadence, uh, and kind of that staccato delivery. But even then, like, Busta's pulling from Jamaican music as much as anything, and, like, he's able to shift speeds very, um, very well. Old Dirty Bastard's just on his own planet in many ways. Um, I think he may have been literally just on his own planet. <laughs> um, so there's him. He stands out. And then you have probably the most renowned... Um, just technicians and the most renowned flows in the group between Jizza, Raekwon, Ghostface Killer, uh, and Method Man too, who I don't, this may have been the peak for Method Man. Like he's good and he's produced other good stuff, but I don't, right. What he's doing on 36 chambers. I don't know that he's ever really topped it. Um, of course, Jizza, Raekwon, Ghostface Killer, they'd go, they'd all go on to release, very well-regarded solo albums, all of which I think we may get to talk about at some point during Ooh. this podcast series. <laughs> I'm pretty excited for that. That is exciting. Um, I was just going to say very quickly that, like, on this album at least, I think Method Man is probably my favorite. I don't, I don't know if that's like a heterodox opinion or anything, but like, I, I just enjoy hearing him a whole lot when he's when he's working on this. Yeah, Method Man, I think, is the one. When this was released, anyway, he was definitely the one who stood out, and I think he's definitely the biggest name casually. Um, I think if you just ask some lay people, they're going to recognize Method Man before they recognize anyone else in the group. Maybe they've heard the name Old Dirty Bastard, but they don't actually know what that is. (laughs) Um, Or they're just confusing him with the Austin Powers character of similar name. Right. (laughs) Um... (laughs) So we have Old Dirty Bastard, Lardass, and Fat Bastard all in one episode. It's all coming together. Um, No, I think after the release, Method Man was definitely the one that stood out to the point where it seemed like he was kind of the leader. And I think that might be short of Old Dirty Bastard, like his his voice and his style just kind of stands out more than some of the others, Um, especially when you're nine deep. Like, you're going to risk... conflation no matter what happens but method man has right he goes on with red man later and makes how high and like becomes sort of uh important to the kind of that weed rap scene um and you can kind of hear that here i guess like it's a little bit slower at times like his his rhythm's just a little bit off from everyone else like there's just something distinct about him and you kind of know when he shows up um and and of course, too, he's the only one, the only individual with the song with his name in it on this album. Um, there's the Method Man <laughs> song about halfway through. So definitely after this, it kind of, there was the perception that he was the leader. But really, that's RZA who, and this has been documented elsewhere. I don't know every single detail, but you can go find it somewhere. But he basically set this up where Wu-Tang released this joint album and they would release more, but he procured solo record deals for everyone involved. 
and that was part of the the deal he set up for making this initial collective album. Uh, and of course, this would <clears throat> lead to great albums like Liquid Swords, which is Joe Biden's favorite, of course. Um, for Cuban Links, um, Ghostface Supreme Clientele from Ghostface, Ghostface Killer. Like this leads to a series of just great solo albums. Even Old Dirty Bastard. Um, I want to say it's re-enter the 36 chambers. He releases that and it's just his full weirdness. Um, but it's just, this is unlike anything that had happened in hip hop before, I think just in terms of what the group is doing and how it becomes a collective in the sense of they all come together and make this fantastic joint album and they would release more. But they're all their own individual personalities and personas, and they're all good in their own right. And it really is this meeting of, here's just nine kind of crazy and really proficient hip-hop artists, and they're going to come together and do this thing, and that's going to lead to these individual tracks. So I think it, it makes... right. I think this is the best collective in hip-hop history. I don't think I'm I'm going out on a limb too far to say that, and it really changes how those deals were made um, and how they even get set up. Um, there's been a lot of ink shed on 36 Chambers, which is why I'm not talking about it too much. Uh, I'm just going to say all the ink that has been shed is right. That is really good. That it was well regarded when it came out, and it gets increasingly more uh, regard as as we go along. Um, it's what 27 years old now and it's number two on this list um you know 10 years ago it probably would have been top 20 i don't know that it would have been top two so it just keep it keeps getting more acclaim and that, that's kind of fun to see um it's sort of here's another thing that i don't think we all expected to hear today but it's another thing that's it's like toy story like you don't you don't need us to tell you how good it is like it's it speaks for itself. It has been there since the early mid '90s, and you know it's 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 uh, got the acclaim, and it's still absolutely worth your time. Yeah, definitely. Just go listen to it. Like it's just an experience, and it's an hour of time that I don't think words can really do justice. And like we say that about texts a lot a general we there not tim and i necessarily but i think this for this one it's true like you just kind of have to experience this and it's it's world and everything that's been said about it is good is right um if you're looking for the highlights of course those are still probably bring to ruckus um definitely cream <clears throat> which you were talking about it being elegiac and sort of probably three-fourths of the way through the album, we get Cream, which stands for Cash Rules Everything Around Me, which is this much more direct just rumination on growing up poor and in you know a classically uh, classified... There's a phrase. A traditionally classified ghetto and just growing up in that environment. Um, and the mystery of check, chess boxing, which is... I think generally agreed upon as the best technical show on the album um, where I think it's six of them yeah, are it's, it's out a... and just full force 
rapping. Like they're pulling out their best verses here. Incredibly busy, uh, incredibly full. But it, it, it's it's a it's a symphony. It really is, and right, it begins with this like ex, extolling of chess, and then it just immediately proceeds into these six dudes trying to top each other, and it's it's just a great distillation of. You want to know what the Wu Tang is like? Listen to this one, and you'll figure it out. Um, there's a ton of debate around what's the best verse on Thirty Six Chambers, and I'm not going to wait into that because I don't have a good opinion. Um, I'm going to let other people fight that out, but I will say, <clears throat> go listen to this. L- listen to the Voltron form between these nine dudes and figure out for yourself what you think the best verse is. There are a lot of great choices, <laughs> and I don't think that question is ever going to be a- answered. Um, so we move from 36 Chambers, which is a brilliant uh, technically and um, in terms of production and in terms of business savvy and just what it sets up for hip-hop going forward, how it changes basically an entire uh, region of music. Um, So much like Nevermind, this is an incredibly foundational album. Much has been said about it and its importance. I don't know, it really can't be overstated. On so many fronts, this album is important and it's just really, really good. But we're thinking about rap collectives and how those function. So today we're going to talk about Digital Underground's 1990 album Sex Packets and D12's 2001 album Devil's Night. And we have gone from Wu-Tang Clan, which mixes funny with deeply serious and sad and um, you know depressing in some cases, to two albums that are really just trying to be funny and they have serious moments but they're they're trying to be funny more than anything else so before we before we go into this i do want i want to like let the listener in on a little inside baseball here so this is the first one where i don't think either one of us is well no i guess matt had you you'd seen morocco right I hadn't seen. I had that weird like familiarity with yes, it. So. Yes, that's right. So this is this is my first time not having listened to either album. So we are going to get a very pure case of of how well is this explained and played out. I don't even know which one of these is the right one for me to be contrarian about. So we are we're gonna we're gonna discover how this goes in a very pure sense. I think. Um. Anyway, not to interrupt too much. No, 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 no. I was going to say, I think this may be the first moment where we don't have a clear contrarian choice anyway, because right. I don't know that if I said Rap Collective, most people would expect these two to come out of it. Um, not that they aren't, not that these are unknown acts, but I kind of just picked two that were fun. Um, I thought that would be a nice little breakup of everything, and I think that's something that... Not that it gets forgotten with Wu-Tang, but it's just kind of important to them that maybe doesn't get as much play. So let's start with Digital Underground, who uh, is a hip-hop collective coming out of Oakland, California, coming together in the late 80s, forming base in 1987, I think it was. Um, and they released Sex Packets, which is their first album in 1990. And all of you may be thinking, well, I don't know what either of those things is. But yes, you do, because you know the Humpty Dance. And that's the first song on Sex Packets. This is all all I know. I am one track in, and that's it. And I I, I think that's a... 
we're going to talk about the structure of the album a little bit, but there's there's a moment in Humpty Dance where the persona that Shock G, who is kind of the RZA of this group, so to speak, um, and he's in his his alter ego of Humpty Humped here, and he references Grab Him in the Biscuits, and when he said that before. And when he said that is about five tracks later on the same album. <laughs> so you're starting with the Humpty Dance, and we all know how that goes, and how, like when I say it goes, like that song goes, but it's also just hilarious. And we remember the references to you know, how he gets busy in a Burger King bathroom and the importance of his nose to certain sex positions and uh, the Humpty Dance itself, which if you're doing correctly should look like a fit or a convulsion or as someone yells at him, it looks like your MC Hammer on crack. Like, <laughs> the, the sort of the story of Digital Underground is that they tried to do, or they wanted to do more serious stuff initially and then they saw things like uh, and by things, I mean groups like Public Enemy, who are just taking that lane and running with it. Like We're going to talk about Public Enemy in a few episodes, but they take that socially conscious rap and just make it their own and make it heavier and harder and just better. <clears throat> and so, led by Shock G, Digital Underground basically switched to, okay, let's do funny, um, and let's bring a lot of P-Funk into the equation, and for those who don't know, P-Funk basically just means anything that George Clinton is touching. Um, it's mostly associated with his work in Parliament and Funkadelic and Parliament Funkadelic. Um, but it's, it's his brand of funk that has heavier rock qualities to it at some point, And really, it, it's a sample haven. Um, pick a song off a hip-hop album, good chance there's going to be some P-Funk sample on it. Um, George Clinton is massively important to a lot of um, black music, really. And so most of Sex Packets is pulling from that. Um, and most of these songs are deeply funky in that way. And much like the Humpty Dance, as weird and lovable as it is, like the groove on that thing, that still holds up. Yes. That, that <laughs> just that grinding bass line that... Um, shock g as humpty hump um, even about halfway through like directs listener attention to that thing i don't know it'll still get you going i i maintain that this is a, a brilliant wedding song um even if <laughs> most people shouldn't be trying to do the actual humpty dance like it just it hits and people start having fun and it makes you want to shake your hips and start dancing and like that's part of the brilliance of this and when digital underground is at their best that's what they're doing and when Sex Packets is at its best, that's what it's doing. And you have other songs that are able to do that on the album. Not all of them hit. Um, this would certainly not be in contention for the second best album of this 30-year period. And indeed, neither one of these is going to be as good as Enter the 36 Chambers. They're not even close, honestly. But <clears throat> when thinking about rap, rap collectives, um, I think these are both fun and good albums and if you look on the wikipedia page digital underground counts i think i counted this earlier it's 35 members at one point or another um they're now a defunct group so they're all classified as past but this was a massive rotation of people and of artists in the oakland scene and shock g is the ringleader much like rizza is kind of the ringleader of uh, of Wu-Tang 
<clears throat> but whereas Wu-Tang had those, you know, that plethora of different personalities that can really come through and steal a song at any time, this is really up to Shock G and his various personalities. He also uh, fashions himself as MC Blowfish on another song, which has one verse at the very end. And that song ends with him saying, oh, it looks like a shark is coming. I should blow up. And then it just cuts out and lets the beat run for another like two bars or so. And then the song ends. So you get just these weird. kind of lovably weird moments throughout <laughs> this album where he's taking on these different personas, rapping with funny voices, um, which is not to say there aren't other people here. Um, Chopmaster J is fairly important to the production and to the formation of the actual group. Uh, and he <clears throat> he worked a lot with Shock G, especially at the beginning of all of this. Um, I said we would talk about Tupac um, a little bit earlier, and he was actually in Digital Underground for a minute. And that's part of the reason I picked them, uh, is because this was an important collective to a scene. And I don't know that we often think about Oakland hip-hop of this time and the last decade or so i'd say there are a lot more oakland artists uh breaking big um but really kind of when you think about the oakland scene all roads led to digital underground at this time and that's where most of the members are coming from and it is sort of this launching pad in a way where they can all get together and collaborate and kind of develop the scene together which it is going to be very p-funk influenced it's going to be funnier it's going to incorporate humor more than kind of the street realism that <clears throat> Los Angeles is is by this point almost entirely focused on. Um, NWA already has an album out. Ice Cube's already working. The Chronic is in production. Easy is doing his thing. <clears throat> like Southern California gangster rap is the thing right now. And Oakland, Oakland rap, particularly through Digital Underground, is kind of this off-kilter... Um, I don't know, alternative to that in a way, but not really alternative. Like there was no way it was going to displace that. Um, but I just think what Digital Underground is doing is important in its own right because it's showing us that even while gangster rap is rising and taking over the scene, there's still room for the stuff that is more indebted to funk, that's more indebted to the 70s soul stuff, that's more indebted to George Clinton. Um, and that can be funny and that can keep that humor and can still say things along the way. There's certainly more, um, <clears throat> I guess, what's the word I want here? Silly songs here than anything, but you get something like The Danger Zone, which is talking about uh, the dangers of crack sales and just what crack has ravaged on black communities in particular, especially in some of those California cities. Um, so the, like that, that social conscious side of them never went anywhere. Uh, it just... They decided, okay, I think Shock G says at one point, like, we saw other people were doing that. We decided let's just make it funky and let's make it fun and let's get people uh, out and moving and dancing. And, like, let's just make it sound like when we recorded it was a party in the room. And that's the vibe we want to give people. And that became kind of Oakland rap for a minute. And no, it's not hugely popular. Like, I don't think really anyone thinks of this scene, but Digital Underground does live on in A, the Humpty Dance, and the other 
big single from this album, which was actually the first single, Do What You Like, um, which is where the Humpty Hump persona debuted and where Grab Em in the Biscuits is the actual reference point. And <clears throat> there's a lot to love in that song, but my favorite moment is about three and a half minutes in. It actually stops and you get this like radio announcer voice that says, we're stopping here for the purposes of radio identification and for radio to fade out the single. And if you need help here, we'll start doing that for you. And it fades out the song and then it comes back in. It's like, if you're listening to this in a club, in the car, um, you know, on a beatbox at a street party, house party, block party, like if you're listening to it anywhere else, here's basically four and a half more minutes of song. And then it kicks into this just wonderful piano solo that as far as I, from what I've researched is pulling from a bunch of samples that other hip hop songs have used. And it's Shock G playing the piano himself. And it's just this, like, it's this, how do I want to describe this? Like it is a party moment. It feels like, okay, we're all having fun. Just everyone grab an instrument, do what you want and do what you like. And let's just have a good time. And there's a good times song by Sheik moment and another song where you just hear good times real quick flash through. And I feel like Sex Packets is just bringing so many cool things together. And the songs run too long. I will say that most of them don't <laughs> need to be six or seven minutes like they are. Um, and it's not like virtuoso rapping here. It's not going to be on par with what's happening on a Wu-Tang album. But if you want something more light and more fun and just interesting, and that's pulling a bunch of kind of random stuff together, um, Sex Packets is really good at that. And it actually ends with kind of a concept suite where the last five tracks are a few uh, interludes or musical digressions that are actually like they're they're good. They sound really nice. And then two songs that develop this concept of Sex Packets. And I want to find the exact language here, but I'm going to talk while I find that. But the concept is essentially uh, a, a pill or a drug that, the, that causes the user to have such vivid uh, wet dreams that it's basically a replacement for sexual activity. And the songs outline this, the songs being Sex Packets and Packet Man. And the first one kind of outlines this whole theory and this whole backstory, really. And then Packet Man is about selling the drug, so it kind of moves back to that street conscious thing. But also the seller is selling to Humpty Hump again, so it, it never leaves. It's funny. Um, and I found the phrase, Shock G describes this as, this is in the song, biochemically compacted sexual affection, or your favorite toss-up in a pill. I mean, that's a Viagra ad right there. I know, but like, here's here's my real thesis about sex packets. I think this is a marvelous postmodern text. Here we that go. You have this. <laughs> Tim is shaking his head at me. As Here we he go. Should. I'm gonna finish on this, but I've been saving this to to make everyone not tune out. But when you think of postmodernism as this bringing together of high and low culture, here's this high concept thing. This is pulling from traditionally classified high high concept, high culture music in terms of P-Funk. That's that's most of the the influence here, what it's drawing from. 
and then weave through that so many just sarcastically horny songs and a concept of sex packets like we've just said and like it's something like just MC Blowfish in general like this this is this combination of high and low culture that I think is just kind of perfect for 1990 itself uh, and also I think a wonderful illustration of how postmodernism can work in popular music well I'm not going to top that um <laughs> I was wondering if you had anything to say, but let's move on to Devil's Night, which is not a postmodern text. <laughs> I will say I am a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit against this one because where I'm from, it's called Mischief Night, and I understand that Devil's Night is a more popular term, but I I uh, I, I bear the contentiousness of my people proudly, and and so it's going to have some work to do. Uh, to to eclipse sex packets, but I am I'm excited to hear about this second option. My people call it Devil's Night, and really, what this is going to show is the contentiousness between Tim and mine's people that we reserve mostly for sheets and Wawa. I'm just gonna say for each other, mostly. Actually, That's mostly for New Yorkers, but anyway. <laughs> Oh, God, I miss the hate of the Northeast. It feels so warm and, and home-like. <laughs> um, Devil's Night by D12 uh, came out in 2001. And if you know D12, it's because it has Eminem. Um, I don't think D12 is in the popular music lexicon anymore. Though they did have a big hit with Purple Pills. Um, that was like a genuine hit back when it came out, which is mystifying because it's an entire song about just ingesting drugs and all of the fun and awful things that can happen while you're doing so and it's just rife with puns about different drugs and different effects and i don't know I, i'm sort of of the opinion that any song with bizarre on it is if it becomes a hit i'm just kind of baffled because he will get to him um <clears throat> The background on D12, this is a Detroit collective, and Eminem, far and away, is the most popular person from it, though uh, there are five other members here, and it's called D12 because it's those five plus their sort of demented alter egos, uh, so they call themselves the Dirty Dozen. And this is really a snapshot of kind of late 90s, what's happening in Detroit hip-hop, um, so you have Eminem, of course, and he's already broke big at this point. He has the Slim Shady LP and the Marshall Mathers LP already out. Uh, and the, the Eminem show comes out the next year. So this is an incredible four-year run for him. These are all good albums. And Devil's Night, in many ways, is kind of unintentionally a showcase for him. Um, but it just really becomes clear how good of an MC he actually is when he's in the context of uh, a collective. But anyway, this is part of that run for him. But besides Eminem, um, we have Proof, we have Caniva, we have Con Artist, we have Swifty McVeigh, and we have Bazaar. And Proof, besides Eminem, is probably the one with the most recognition, but that's largely an underground one. Um, Eminem has spoken highly of him 
many, many times as kind of protecting him and his talents as he was rising through the <clears throat> the freestyle um, scene of Detroit and just kind of trying to rise through the ranks and actually break big. And Proof is a renowned freestylist, which obviously he's not doing here, but he, besides him, the other four are, they're friends, they're, they're rappers in the local scene, and you can tell they all get along and that they work well together and that this is another really uh, concise and together effort, kind of like uh, 36 chambers, like everyone works together and it sounds right. And they're all, they're working off of each other. And it does really, it's emblematic of, I think kind of what we want out of collectives, like where it's these people, it's these artists that come together and we hear them bounce off of each other in new and fun ways and hear how their voices work together. And it's something different from their solo outings. And it's just time to have fun in a way and to actually um, just recast yourself in a different context. And I think Devil's Night does well at that. Um, <clears throat> that said, it always does feel like a moment when Eminem's about to have a verse and maybe that's kind of in retrospect, just knowing what he was then, what he's, uh, you know, how popular he still is. Um, you can just kind of tell like when he's about to come in um, and it feels like a moment and his skills are, they're the best of the six. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. So some of the stuff he pulls off here. And again, this is in that, that run of his three best albums. So he's at the height of his powers right here. And of all the one-liners that he can throw out, my favorite is probably on the song Ain't Nothing But Music, which we'll talk about a little bit right now. But <laughs> to all the, uh, the haters and doubters, shall we say, he says, and this is the part I should have said at the top where this episode may be slightly not safe for the kids or work. Uh, but he drops the one-liner, fuck your jewelry, fuck your jewelry, my record's almost diamond. And I think that's just like, that's kind of a perfect one-liner tell-off where it's like, what are you going to do with that? It's a, it's a uh, real encapsulation of the guy, especially at that time. Yeah, and Ain't Nothing But Music is kind of a song-length, <clears throat> I don't want to say thesis, but kind of rumination on this from all of them where they're fighting with that sense that what they're doing is just music when we all know it's really not, but fighting at the same time, the incredible backlash that a lot of rappers were facing, especially Eminem in this moment, and rightfully so, often. Um, there's a lot of hard and cringy content on this album and on his solo works, and Ain't Nothing But Music kind of works around this. Look, all we're making is music. Clearly we're joking. No one should take this uber seriously. But then you balance that with songs later on that are meant to be more serious, uh, like the title track, like Fight Music, where I've been working on this in my head. I'm just going to drop it here. It's not fully worked out. But I think there is a genuine care for kids that Eminem and the group have, that like they actually care about children feeling safe and knowing that they are important in some ways. Now that does not at all excuse some of their raps or the, the misogyny and the homophobia that are ever present on this album. Um, 
uh, or any of the the more cringy aspects or the fact that Eminem, as clear as it is that he loves his daughters, they, they ended up in so many songs that that can't be good. Um, but we hear in a lot of these songs moments of they're just kind of pointing out the neglect that some children face and that, that that's probably more important and more impactful on their bad behavior than a rap album is. And they're kind of, they're like, they're trying to point at those moments and then also say, right, this can be a haven. This music can be a space for that. And I think this really comes through on the Eminem show, which we're not talking about here. So that's just the general thing I've been thinking about. But I, it makes it really odd over the course of this whole thing where I think there is some genuine care in there. But then you also get Bazaar, who on one song is rapping about eating the remnants of a miscarriage and masturbating with antifreeze. And those are just two examples of kind of his general tenor on the whole thing. And you get the Steve Berman sketch in the middle, which would be repurposed on a couple albums where... Basically, he calls out, here are all the things that are wrong with this and like why it's going to be a commercial dud, and yet it's popular anyway. But it's like, you know they're in on the joke and you have that moment. But then they just like they keep going with more songs. And whereas Sex Packets, I think it's retrograde in many ways now, but it's genuinely funny. Devil's Night is kind of emblematic of that risque hip-hop positioning where it's funny to a certain type of person but when you really dig into it lyrically especially it just stops being funny it becomes too much and some of the songs on this album run into that very quickly there are others like purple pills that i think is genuinely still funny um songs like fight music like the title song i think are doing different and better work uh, something like Blow My Buzz is another sort of ode to drugs and the night out, and I think stands up as just humorous. Um, and then you get kind of the end of the album where it becomes kind of the Eminem show in a way. He has a solo song at the end where he's just kind of calling out everyone he has beef with. So it, it's, it's an uneven album in many ways. But I would say in terms of collective, what it does is like digital underground we're getting kind of a painting of a local scene of a city scene in this case detroit and again it's a mixture of kind of that hard street reality but we're going to be funny in different ways and maybe that that humor is a way to cope with what's actually happening and more than anything it's a chance for people to just come together and make something that they're enjoying and to bounce off of each other and just kind of have a fun time. These are people that come up in the scene together. Some of them break differently in popularity, certainly with D12. Eminem is far and away more known than anyone else in this group ever was or will be. But I think it is an attempt to level everyone out and show, right, we were all working in the scene together and there is no popularity for one of us without everything that happened without all of us together. And like, I'm going to relay that popularity into let's make a group album now. Whereas Wu Tang did sort of the, the opposite because of Riz's foresight. This is kind of a, let's come back and bring everyone together and show that 
right? I didn't just do this alone. Uh, there's there are more voices in any scene that's happening. So both of these albums, then I think, are kind of a representation of what's happening in a particular city at a particular point in time, and an attempt to give voice to what's actually happening there in two scenes that I don't think are really well known. Um, Oakland in the early nineties, the biggest product of Oakland in the early nineties is MC hammer. So it really is party rap in that way. Um, but digital underground is doing something a bit different and I don't know, higher aiming, I guess. And eventually Tupac comes out of that, but he's more influenced by Suge and Dr. Dre than anyone else. And Detroit, we don't really know Detroit. We know Eminem, but we don't really know what else was happening in Detroit. I would say Jay Dilla is probably the second most famous product, or Royce to 5'9", and they're both going to break later. So you have two albums here that I think are good... uh, emblems of particular scenes and good examples of what happens when a bunch of people who are working together anyway just kind of come together and make something that they actually enjoy and you can hear that come through in the music and i think that's what's important when we talk about any rap collective like right they are kind of business propositions in a way um, and we see that in the wu-tang model especially but it doesn't work if you don't have people having fun you can tell when it feels rote but both of these albums have a certain bounce and a certain joy to them uh, even though they're pulling from different places, Devil's Night is pulling more from right the production you're going to hear on most Eminem albums, uh, as led by Dr. Dre, as led by Obi Trice. Um, that sort of harder G funk type production, um, and Digital Underground is pulling from 70s soul, 70s funk, really dra- dragging those those beats and those grooves out and building those out. And that's more club music in a way. Um, but both of them, I think you get an effective snapshot of what's happening. So that's what I thought would have been a shorter pitch for each album. But <laughs> here we are. Uh, so I present to you, Tim, Sex Packets or Devil's Night? For me, the uh, the thing that stands out is the fact that you're describing D12 as a group which, not on purpose, but sort of in fact and in practice, just sort of feels like Eminem sort of eclipses everybody else. And if for no other reason, that makes me favor uh, Digital Underground here and Sex Packets, because I, I feel like even if they do have a member who is sort of leading and pushing things it also doesn't feel from your description um like that album is is just totally his or you're just waiting for him to come back it feels more collective and less like backing group i think yeah it's a phenomenon with both of these albums that they each have one person that is so important or so just popular really that they do if not just directly overtake threaten to overtake the whole thing um there is no digital underground without shock g Uh, d12 is something that develops in the 90s before eminem is known by anyone and those are people that are together but right you can't be a group in the same way after someone has gone diamond 
nearly on two records already. Like, there's always that, just that aura of, okay, well, when's Eminem going to come in for casual listeners? The rapping is better on Devil's Night. Uh, no one is as good as Shock G on Sex Packets, but <clears throat> that's also not entirely the point. And some of the diversity in that one is kind of him taking on his different personas. So in both cases, you have not the threat, but just the aura or the lure of here's kind of the singular personality who's threatening to dominate in some way. And I think you're right, though. And I, you know, I, I presented that as part of an honest assessment that you just kind of know Eminem's around and that he's better than these other ones in terms of recorded reps. And I think for many listeners, his are the most like viscerally exciting verses. Um, whereas with Digital Underground, there's kind of the benefit of no one really know who, who knew who Shock G was before this. And many still don't really because they just know him as Humpty Hump, which is not the voice he uses on most of the songs. <laughs> which to me was a shock when I first listened to this album a long time ago. Um, I thought that was just what he did, and that's not. That's a definite persona. So I think you're right there, and I think in different ways they are both good collectives and there's a lot of people contributing, but they both do have that sort of lone genius threat behind them in a way that Wu-Tang does, but the sheer talent of so many other people involved kind of level that out all right so i think that's what we have for this episode so for the movie side of things we had the replacements for toy story and the theme of playtime little women by greta gerwig and stand by me by rob reiner and stand by me is our subtitle there and on the other side um in the category of rap collectives replacing enter the wu-tang 36 chambers by the Wu-Tang Clang, Clang. <laughs> the one time my voice doesn't do the fake, the one time I don't drop my G, Wu-Tang Clang. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> I think, I. so remember that time we found the Wu-Tang name generator? <laughs> <laughs> Vividly. Because <laughs> I think we found the band name. <laughs> It, it, I don't know. Something about the, the clash makes me think about climbing, and I'm imagining, like, what if you did London Calling via Staten Island? What a thought that is. Um, anyway, replacing uh, the Wu-Tang Clans, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, the choices, Digital Undergrounds, Sex Packets, or D12's Devil's Night, I chose Sex Packets. So I guess cut that out and use it as often as you feel feel led to. When you're like doxed many years in the future, it's just gonna be that. Like I choose sex packets. <laughs> Alright, and I think that is more than enough for this episode. So we will see you next time here on subtitles. <laughs>